tonight I'd like to begin with a short haiku by the, uh, uh, the, the famous haiku poet from uh, Japan, Basho. And he says, it's not like anything they compare it to, the summer moon. So again, it's not like anything they compare it to, the summer moon. Maybe you've had some kind of experience like Basho probably had of having an experience like seeing the moon or seeing the sunset and realizing, wow, there's, there's, there's nothing, it's not like anything they compare it to. It's not like any of the descriptions I've read about it. It's just something so much more vast than any word or sentence or language can capture with this experience of the summer moon or the sunset or the cool breeze in the evening. It's nothing like all those words and those sentences. Something more vast, maybe even more mysterious than the words we use to try, try to describe our experiences. And tonight, that's what I'd like to talk about, is just the limits of language and how if I get, if I get stuck in using words and sentences, I might miss something so much vaster than the words and sentences that I'm um, surrounded by. I actually might miss this really wonderful experience of the summer moon or a sunset or a sunrise, or I might miss the vast experience I can have with another human being or even with the breath. Because what I've noticed about my, my own mind is that it can uh, grasp on to kind of these oversimplistic notions that come with sometimes language and how we use it. And when I get caught up in language and words, uh, sometimes I suffer and sometimes as a result other people suffer because of how I treat them, because I'm hooked in some way by how I'm using words and language. So I want to take some time about how does this function in our lives? Maybe you can relate to it, maybe not. And I also want to begin by saying that, um, to acknowledge that I, I, here I am going to be using language to talk about the limits of language. So it's a, it's a really bad setup for me in terms of sharing something with you. So uh, we'll see how it goes. And you do hear the Buddha talk about this. And I want to share with you uh, a passage. This is from uh, a passage from early Buddhism. There are these uh, uh, discourses called suttas that were written in the Pali languages, Pali being the early scriptural language of Buddhism. And the Buddha is talking about this, the limits of language. And, and I want to go slowly. I'm going to uh, read to you this passage, and then hopefully we'll parse it apart, because it's, it's paradoxical what he's talking about here. And he's talking to another monastic, another monk, by the name of Kachayana. And he says to Kachayana, he says, Kachayana, this world, this world that we live in, is supported by a polarity. And he says, it's this polar polarity of existence and non-existence. And he says, but when one sees the origination of the world actually as it is, with right discernment, non-existence with reference to the world does not occur to one. And when one sees the cessation of the world as it actually is with right discernment, 
quote-unquote, the existence with reference to the world does not occur to one. So what is he saying here? That somehow these words, existence and non-existence, miss the mark of our experience. And then he goes on, he says, everything exists, that idea that everything exists is one extreme, and everything that everything doesn't exist, that is a second extreme. And avoiding these two extremes, the Tathagata, the Buddha, teaches this path via the middle way. How to understand this? This is, can be so confusing. So let's give an example and, 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 and go through this. So for example, the sound of my voice. We could say it exists. But he's saying if, it, if you really see how the sound of my voice disappears, you wouldn't want to say it exists because then it's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. And you wouldn't want to say it doesn't exist because here it is arising. So he's really clear. He says if you're seeing the arising of experience, you wouldn't want to say that nothing doesn't exist because you're having an experience of it. But you wouldn't want to be too attached to that idea because then it disappears. So he's pointed out with language, just with the idea of existence and non-existence, it misses the fluidity of what's going on just with the sound of my voice. And the sound of my voice, even as you hear it come and go, it arises and it disappears. And just the experience of that right now, how there's a sound and then it goes away, is so different than these concepts of existence and non-existence. Those seem philosophical, like otherworldly, compared to the direct experience of sound coming and going. Like sound coming and going is so simpler. It's so much more immediate. And when you taste that immediacy of the sound of my voice coming and going, it might feel vaster than these words existence, non-existence. And it's not like we're trying to throw away words and language. We're just trying to get a sense of how they limit. They can limit our taste of experience. Just to back to Basho, because that's kind of our direct experience. It's just as Basho said, it, you know, it's not like anything they compare it to. The feeling of my breath. I can compare the feeling of my breath to all kinds of things, like a balloon expanding and contracting, but the feeling of breathing right now feels different than that. Right? Those are just words. And if you feel your breath right now, you can feel it without any words, without any description. There's something more immediate, something more simple to that, and therefore something vaster when you touch the breath. Because when you touch the breath in that way, really, there's nothing you can compare it to. Can you notice that? Wow, there's nothing I can compare this to. I can just feel the breath here, and it's, it's so much vaster than, than all my words and descriptions. Or when I really taste maybe the experience of sadness. I know it's sadness, but wow, it's, there's nothing I can compare it to, what I'm going through, this grief, this sadness but I'm feeling it, and I can maybe give some words to it. It hurts, or it's oppressive, or it's dark, but there's nothing I can compare it to when I really touch it, when I really feel into it. Or when I feel joy. Wow, there's nothing 
It's nothing like anything I can compare it to. Uh, the joy in my life when I go outside and I feel a cool breeze. Or even something more difficult like fear. I feel fear and when I really touch it, wow, there's nothing I can compare it to. It's beyond words in some way. It's not like anything I can describe. And some of you maybe have had these experiences through your meditation, just that you touch something that's beyond language, beyond words. And there can be something so freeing about that. And at the same time, I, I want to point out, I love language. It's a cool thing. I really like it. So I'm, I'm, I, uh, it's really important. But it's this dance of how do I use language but not by, be confined by it. And so I want to take up a, a particular way of thinking that comes up and to explore it a bit more. Because when I talk about it, you might see how confining it can be. And, it's, and I call it binary thinking. And, 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 or, or dichotomous thinking, this, this sense of um, the way thought sometimes we can boil down to these opposites, to these polarities, the way the Buddha was talking about it. And so I want to go through some of these, these polarities and we'll get a sense of maybe the usefulness of them, but also how they can be so confining. Like if I were to say, right, and left. Like those are thoughts that I find really helpful. I'm driving down the road with my partner and I know where to go and they don't know where to go. You need to turn right here rather than left. It's a really great use of, of language. But when you think about it, if living just in the world of right and left, do you see all that's missing? Like there's this whole spectrum. It's just here's the left and here's the right, but there's this, this whole gradation of the, the, the spatial dimension around me. And I'm just using two words to describe this whole circle of space around me. So it misses the spectrum of how I'm spatially located. Or if I were to say young, old, yet there's a whole spectrum there. But here, do you start to see, now we can get a little bit of sense of how confining this can be. You ever have the thought, man, I am so old now, <laughs> in the confinement of that. Or the feeling of so young, like I don't fit into a group because of my age, because I'm young, I'm not old. So now we're starting to hear sometimes the things that can come with opposites. Tall, short, strong, weak, pretty, or ugly. And hopefully when I say these, you might hear there's sometimes what comes with this thinking is there's a valence that one is better than the other. And of course there's been people that have thought about this a lot, like uh, the, the philosopher and writer uh, Aline uh, Sixu, who, who talks about how, in, in some ways, this is how domination happens. If I were to say man, woman, or white, black, 
you know, there are societal valences around these opposites. And I'm not saying they're bad, it's just that if I get lost in those, can you start to hear the harm that might start to arise in these opposites? If I'm really hooked by language, and also what comes with language, the kind of valences that come with language. So this is binary thinking here. And the thing is, is we create a whole world out of these dichotomies, like friend, foe. Or if I were to use the words Republican, Democrat. <laughs> it's an easy one, right? That kind of gets to it, right? There's a feeling like you, you hear those words, and then depending on where you are on that spectrum, there is an other there where, where there's a bifurcation. And then so much harm, you know, so much of the, the discourse around politics, there's so much harm because of this binary thinking around this, of how we do this. And I want to point out it's tricky because sometimes like the language of friend-foe can be really helpful because it's a kind of thinking that happens really quickly. Like for example, I remember when I was in Yellowstone National Park, this is when many, many years ago, I was at, uh, uh, quite young and we were on the Yellowstone River, this kind of hidden place, and there was a grizzly bear that was coming toward us. And it was really great to have binary thinking, like, this is not safe. So is this safe or not safe? And rather than like, is it kind of safe or maybe relatively safe? It's just not safe. So we, we come by this way of thinking of opposites honestly, like there's a purpose of it. But hopefully you're hearing with some of these opposites how how tricky it can be because it can really confine ourselves and confine others because of the things that get glommed onto it. And we can believe it so readily. And it can feel like just the way the world is. But what I want to point out is it's not necessarily the way the world is. It's just, it's just language in a way of perceiving the world and creating a certain world. So it's not getting rid of these opposites, it's how I hold, hold them, how I navigate them. And I want to take one of these opposites, one of these notions, and to, to parse it apart because it can be so fundamental of how we see ourselves and how we see other people. And that's the dichotomy of male and female. So I'm talking more in terms of biology now. We're not even getting the gender yet, so that's a whole another complexity. Because it, be, it can feel like that all people are either male or they're female. This is what we're taught in biology class a lot, that this is how the natural world works so often. And we, we are given certain stories about this. Like maybe like me, you were given the chromosome story. Did anybody get the chromosome story about between males and females? That, that males have an X chromosome and a Y chromosome in each cell. And females have two X chromosomes. And then we can believe that's what male and female is. But as is said in Zen, often not always so. So there are people who appear male who have two X chromosomes because the, the, the genes are um, uh, expressing themselves differently. 
or there are people who are seen as female who have something called uh, trisomy, which is uh, three X chromosomes. And what I want to point out, this is really important, like around the three X chromosomes, is that 90% of, of the people who have three X chromosomes do not show any kind of symptoms of something going wrong with their, with their uh, physiology. Because sometimes this is the way it's talked about, is we have, because we're now getting to another very, very tricky dichotomy, normal and abnormal. And there's all kinds of stories made around who's normal and who's abnormal. Because if you don't fit into male or female, then you must be abnormal. But that might not be the way the world is. It just might be that we're hooked to like two opposites that don't really fit. Or we could sometimes think about male and female in terms of genitalia. But there are people that have genitalia that don't match up with female genitalia or male genitalia. Or sometimes people try to boil down that there's this male and female to some kind of particular cocktail of sex hormones. But if any of you follow kind of professional sports and things like that, the, 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 the different levels of testosterone, for example, in quote unquote females and males, there's, where's the dividing line? And yeah, this, these notions of male and female, maybe they have at times give us a chance to see biology in a particular way. But hopefully you're hearing underneath this how confining it can be if I really believe, if I'm hooked by those notions. Because that, then I have these notions of who should be a man or who should be a woman or what that even means, or that it's somehow in concrete that it's not really more of a subjective thing of what feels right to us, each and every one of us. And I might have notions of what that's supposed to look like. Like the world is supposed to be bifurcated into two things. And people are supposed to be bifurcated into two different categories. But people are nothing like you compare them to. They're just who they are just the summer moon, so vast, you can't describe them, something mysterious. So I think when we start to understand how our minds can get hooked by language and the worlds it creates, then I can start to be free of it. I can use them but not be confined by these, these notions. And hopefully you're hearing also that this, this gives a whole different uh, sense of what we're doing here in this community. A lot of times we talk about this quality of inclusivity, that we want to cultivate a quality of, of inclusivity in terms of who shows up here, especially, you know, for those who might not fit into simple categories in our dominant society. And it's, inclusivity is not just so we can be hip or feel good about ourselves, <laughs> which is always a common thing, but because it's, it's connected with the deepest wisdom of the spiritual path, because it's connected with understanding how the mind creates worlds that can actually harm ourselves and harm our others. So it's just something that naturally arises out of spiritual insight.
so using language, yes, but not being confined by it. And then to end with a, a story, this again from the Pali Discourses, just because it's so interesting that, so 2,600 years ago, to have a story like this, I think is so interesting that I'll share with you. And so you could say a story around breaking through kind of the, the, the confines that come with how society imagines roles that, that are played out by certain genders and how we can get confined by that. And it's about this nun Who's in, in, in Buddhism, it's called a bhikkhuni, uh, by the name of Soma. So the story goes, once upon a time, in a town near Savati, in the morning the bhikkhuni, Soma, dressed and taking bowl and robe, entered the village for alms. So she was going to, to beg for food. And when she had walked for alms in Savati, gathered her food and ate, and had returned from her alms round after her meal, she went to a grove for the day's abiding. And this, this phrase, the day's abiding, is uh, the, the way a monastic would abide in the day, in the afternoon, is to abide in meditation. And that was basically their life. They'd go and, and beg for food, eat their midday meal, and then they'd go into the forest, like at the foot of a tree, for the day's abiding, to meditate and to, to uh, engage in this, this uh, spiritual practice. And as she was sitting there, Mara, the evil one, came to visit her. So Mara, Mara, people take this differently in different contexts, but um, Mara is this, this um, tempter who comes and tempts the Buddha and other practitioners and a lot of times is whispering something in their ear to see if he can deceive them to leave the spiritual path. And sometimes people take Mara as kind of this, this literal deity that is visiting one, and other people take it as just those thoughts in your mind that come to visit you, that knock you off your path. So here she is. She's sitting here in whatever way you want to take Mara. And Mara, desiring to arouse fear and trepidation and terror in Soma, addressed her in verse. And he said, Oh, that state so hard to achieve, which is to be attained by the noble ones, the seers, the real practitioners, can't be attained by a woman with her two-fingered wisdom. So here it is, that societal judgment. What's up with that, right? It was happening, right? Patriarchy goes a long ways away. Long, uh, <laughs> is very old. So, and then, then it occurred to Soma. She said to herself, "Now, who is it that said that to me?" And then she had the insight. Oh, this is Mara. Oh, this is Mara. Desiring to arouse fear and trepidation and terror in me, desiring to make me fall away from my practice. And having understood, oh, this is Mara, she replied to him. She said to him, ah, you are Mara. 
And she said, what does womanhood matter at all when the mind is concentrated well and when knowledge flows on steadily? As one sees correctly into the way things are, it is to this person, one whom, I'm sorry, let me read that again. She said, ah, Mara, the evil one, replied to him in verses, what does womanhood matter at all when the mind is concentrated well, when knowledge flows on steadily, as one sees correctly into the way things are? And then she continues, one to whom it might occur, I'm a woman, or I'm a man, or I'm anything at all, is fit for Mara to address. Then Mara, realizing, oh, Soma knows me, sad and disappointed, he disappeared right there. Poor Mara. <laughs> Maybe you can relate to this, though, of how there are these words, these dichotomies, these stories that end up being these internal messages that tell us we can't do things or we can't achieve things because we're a woman, or because we're a man, or because we're not smart enough, or because we're not good-looking enough. It's like Mara is coming to visit us, sharing these habitual stories that really keep us frozen in our lives, limit us through that use of language and words. So what's it like to hold ourselves in this way? There's it's like nothing that they compare me to. Ah, the summer moon or the cool breeze. That we're much vaster than any kind of description that we have of ourselves. So practically, how, how can I start to, or how can we start to break free of such internal messages or such kind of rigidity around binary thinking. <coughs> and, and so much of it is what we're doing in the sitting meditation. Can you, when thoughts come up, to see that they're just thoughts? They're just words. They're just sentences. To see them for what they are. Oh, that's just judging. The mind's just judging right now. It's nothing to do with me or the other person. That's what just what the mind is doing. Oh, it's planning. Interesting. That's all it's doing. It's figuring out. It's analyzing. It's remembering. That's just what the mind does. But I have to put more weight into it so I can see that they're just experiences coming and going. So I don't get as hooked by them. So that I can utilize thinking when I need to, but not be seduced by it. As Kathy shared this weekend, I so love this phrase that came up again, which is to see the thoughts that arise rather than being the thoughts that arise. <coughs> so seeing them rather than being them. And sometimes using some kind of label can be helpful. So when we sit tonight, I invite you to do that. Can you just see that a thought is a thought? Your mind's going to be lost in thought, and it's like, oh, thinking. Interesting. That's what's happening. Judging, worrying. And then I come back to the breath to keep it that simple so this, there's this change in relationship to thinking so it doesn't have a, a grip, as big of a grip on us.
Okay, so let's uh, just take a, a minute or two to stretch and move around and then we'll uh, begin to sit together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.